As we continue in worship, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 16, verses 18 through 20. This will be the week to continue in our sermon series on the seven deadly sins and the seven heavenly virtues, remembering that the sins might have more name recognition, but that the emphasis of this teaching was on us to be able to grow into the virtues for that one single end game of loving God and loving neighbor faithfully. And so we started with sloth, knowing that if sloth doesn't change, we'll never find it in ourselves to change anything else. And that the virtue to get rid of sloth is not to just make ourselves busier, but is to be diligent about the ways in which we love God and love neighbor, to be thoughtful and intentional and deliberate. Similarly, Going to the next week of lust, we find faithfulness, a trust in God's sovereignty and God's love for us is a call to faithfulness, that we don't lust over power or the lust of the flesh have dominion over us, but that in God's faithfulness we trust. Anger being last week, how quickly it is that we can lose our tempers, how our anger can get the better of us in moments that compromise our reputation and our integrity and that our anger does not show God's love. And so we learn the virtue of patience, to be able to take a step back, to wait for just a moment, to take a deep breath, or as Hebrew literally writes, to relax your face for just a moment, to compose yourself. And today we come to pride. And pride, there's probably a phrase that we can complete together. Pride comes before the fall. We know this phrase, it's popular beyond just the church, but it comes to us from Proverbs chapter 16, verses 18 through 20. And the virtue that we grow into this week that we seek to pursue is humility. And not humility that leads to humiliation or that leaves us with an ongoing sense of shame, but humility to be humble. To be humble, not humiliation but a purer form of humility to relieve us of our pride. And so as we study God's word together from the book that we love in Proverbs 16, verses 18 through 20, I invite you to join me in prayer as we pray for God's blessing upon the word. Lord, in Philippians, we are told that you emptied yourself And so in this moment, we ask that you in the same way may empty us, empty us so that we may be filled with your Holy Spirit, empty us of our distractions and the places that our mind wander, that we may be attentive to you, empty us of our pride, that with humility we might listen for your voice with our hearts. Empty us in the ways in which we need to be emptied so that there may be room for you to fill us, to sustain us, and to restore us. In the name of Jesus, we pray, asking for your blessing upon the reading of God's word. Amen. Proverbs chapter 16, verses 18 through 20. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be lowly in spirit among the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. Whoever gives heed to instruction prospers, 
and blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's an image that will appear on the screen that links between pride and anger. And the caption, if you can't see it, of all these matches burning along next to each other, the caption is, the power of stepping away. Thinking back to last week on anger, growing into patience, that someone can claim to be spiritually mature, but if they lack the ability to be patient, that those moments don't get the best of them where anger gets passed along and tempers flare, there is a lack of spiritual maturity. The power of stepping away is that moment of patience to remove ourselves from the situation, to take a deep breath, and then to be able to re-engage, that, that we don't spread destruction along from person to person or situation to situation, that what makes us mad at work doesn't come home with us to make us mad at the people in our homes, that when one thing goes wrong in one area, it doesn't affect us in the other. Now, anger and pride as sins are intentionally put together because patience and humility also go together. And so in the same way that, that anger begs for us to be patient enough to take a step away, to separate ourselves out, in the same way pride, pride will sometimes make us stay where we should not stay because we won't back down, we won't be proven wrong, we will not accept the advice of those around us. Pride will also make us stay even where we shouldn't stay to prove our point, to argue, to win. There are some couples who are nudging each other. I just want to make that known. I can see that. Um, and it helps me know that there's some relevance here. We seek humility to be humble as part of the gauge in the same way with patience that we know when to step away, when to step back. And to be humble, if we're not humble, we will never share the blessing that we find in Proverbs 16, verse 20. Whoever gives heed to instruction prospers, meaning whoever actually listens to people who are trying to steer them in the right way. Whoever gives heed to instruction prospers, and blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. To trust in the Lord and to listen to those around us who are wise, or even those who are unwise, whom God has chosen to speak through, requires Humility. Pride goes before the fall. A haughty spirit that will hear no advice, that doesn't need to learn anything, that knows what it needs to know and doesn't need anyone else to tell them anything, that will always lead to the fall. Now that might be obvious. And there might be some angry part of us that likes it when proud, arrogant people fall. As the phrase goes, everyone loves a hero but hates a champion. You love the underdog story, the one who rose up against all adversity, but the reigning champions who just win time after time, they're less exciting. It's like cheering for the Yankees, I guess. Whoever gives heed to instruction prospers. But it takes humility to be able to do so. And as with any of these sins and virtues, they're found throughout Scripture, so there's a lot left unsaid. But there's a few places that we can go in Scripture to, to see where else does pride and humility get talked about. 
And so I invite you to take a look up front here to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, as well as Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Let's read these together, if you can. It might get quieter the further you get back. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Did you catch that our salvation, the thing that we, that we celebrate, that we give the promises of to in baptism is a gift from God and that it is not ours to boast about. That, that being saved and loved by Jesus doesn't fill us with pride, but it's something that we can't boast about because it's nothing that we did. That we baptize because Christ first loved us. That, that this morning, Emmeline Joy did not come forward for baptism boasting about how important and special she is and that that's why Ross and Sarah had her baptized. She did not boast. She does not yet know how. She might learn eventually. But she cannot boast of this. And that when Ross and Sarah came to the elders to request baptism, they didn't come and say, our child is so cute, she deserves to be baptized. Now, she is cute. She's an adorable child. But that's not the merit by which we receive God's love and favor. Our salvation, we are saved through faith by grace. And it's not of ourselves. It's not anything that we could boast about. It is simply a gift from God. So, where this precious child, Emmeline, might be cute and, and bright and smart, that's not why we celebrate God's favor for her. We celebrate God's love and favor because of God's faithfulness and God's diligent love. And we promise that God will be patient as she learns and lives and grows in faith. This is nothing for us to boast about. In fact, that would only lead to the fall. And similarly, what we do, knowing that we are saved, is not just a life insurance policy. It should affect our actions. To be humble should change the way we act with other people. And it should change our love of God and love of neighbor. And Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, captures this sentiment in the same way. So I invite you once again to join me if you can read the words on the screen. Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. This is the aspect of being humble, of pure humility that makes us put others before ourselves and not in a way that, that we're doing just so we can get credit for it later. Like, look at all the good that I'm doing. Don't mind as I take a selfie while I do it. But that true humility just does the thing because we believe that it is right and that we seek to put the interests of others before ourselves and that we learn this from Jesus, Jesus who put us before himself when he died for our sins upon the cross. Humility can be faked. 
arrogance is easy to spot. We can spot it from a mile off. We can call it out. But arrogance can also dress itself up. Pride can dress itself up. And if you will, it can be a wolf that will put on sheep's clothing. There goes the story of a priest in the 15th century in Florence who, when he first moved to Florence, he observed that this old woman every single day went out to a statue of Mary at the break of dawn. As the light first crept over and lit the statue up, she knelt and prayed. And the priest was impressed and and commended her humility that every day with such devotion, she knelt and prayed in front of the statue. It was a perfect picture of humility that every day began with her coming to the statue. And then he learned from one of the other priests, he said, that's not an aspect of humility at all. It's pride. The old woman that you see now, when she was young, a sculptor came to our city, and he needed a subject to sculpt a statue of Mary, and he chose her. And every day since the sculpture was put in the city, she comes out every morning to worship her image. Friends, that might be an extreme example, an easy-to-spot one once we're explained. But keep in mind that pride can be sneaky, that we can do seemingly good things and dress them up well to appear holy and faithful and religious. But at the end of the day, it's always worship of ourselves. Jesus commended humility and curbed us against pride. And one example comes to us from Luke chapter 18. The words will appear on the screen. You can read along, but I'll just read this one myself. Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 13. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like Other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a day, twice a week. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Friends, Humility, the imitation of humility, is just a sneakier form of pride. We can dress up our good deeds to conceal perhaps more prideful motives. And at the end of the day, the question of pride is, who do you want to get the credit? It's very hard to convince people that you're wonderful and that Jesus is wonderful in the same sentence. And if you had to choose one, who do you want to get the most credit and glory? It's an old preaching critique. You can't convince people that you're wonderful and that Jesus is wonderful in the same sermon. So choose one and choose wisely. But in the same way, if our lives are lived as a sermon, as a testimony of the gospel, who do we draw the most glory to and who do we point to? Certainly the Pharisees are easy examples in Scripture to point out their pride. They thought they were just 
hot stuff all the time and put other people down and, and look at how wonderful their prayers were and how religious they were. There's a reaction to the Pharisees that also exists with just as much pride. One writer on the seven deadly sins, <clears throat> picking up on trends in history and then giving us a more contemporary example, wrote this. There is another kind of spiritual pride that is a reaction to the Pharisees. It is manifested in those who are proud that they can publicly acknowledge their evil ways. In some evangelistic services, testimonies are given by celebrities who delight the crowds with stories of their sinful pasts. Those of us who didn't have those same pasts almost start to feel like second-rate citizens in the kingdom of God. Because those who go up front seem to be making the point that they are more spiritual than the rest of us because the Lord has done more for them. It's a temptation to fabricate stories about the past, painting pictures of escapades which never took place, simply because we know how impressed some people will be with our dramatic testimony. A contemporary example written by Tony Campolo. When I was a pastor of a small Baptist church, a woman brought her 10-year-old daughter to me and told her that it was time for her to be baptized. And it was the custom at this church that all candidates for baptism were required to give a testimony of their Christian experience at midweek prayer meeting prior to the baptism. When her turn came, this 10-year-old girl, 10-year-old, rose and piously started her testimony with these words. For years I wandered deep in sin, fulfilling all the lusts of the flesh. This is a 10-year-old. The poor child had heard adults win admiration from the church people by telling of former perverse behavior. And since she lacked this sinful past, she was more than prepared to invent one. Everyone loves a hero and hates a champion. We love the dramatic stories. And they fill us with pride when we can have those fun stories. And I don't discredit that there are beautiful, life-changing moments of conversion. But pride will make that story really about us and how great of a transformation we had. Humility. Humility will point back to Jesus. That it is and always will be about what Jesus has done for us. Which is why baptism is such a beautiful sign of humility. This isn't about what we do. This is about God who loved us first. Humility will make us choose to bring glory to Jesus, to focus on what God has done, to not sell our past short or to invent one that's more exciting just to make sure that we can gain some credit. The culture observation is simply that if a 10-year-old can imitate the language of a congregation, it means it's a popular thing and that there is enough behavior to be learned from to fabricate one's own story. But the beauty of humility is that it doesn't need to fabricate stories. If you will, the next image is a classical painting 
You might be able to guess by context who this is. This is from the Greek myth of Narcissus, where we get our word narcissism for. And you can see he's staring into a pool, and he's so captured by his reflection uh, that he starves to death there because he can't pull himself away from the beauty of his own image. Nor could the woman in Florence pull herself away from her daily ritual of worshiping her image of youth and beauty forever sculpted into the stone of the city. Pride is self-focused. But it didn't come out of nowhere, and it's not abstract. All of the seven deadly sins have some area in our hearts that is empty and hollow, and sin is what will try to naturally occupy those hollow spaces. And the virtues we pursue seek to, to drill out, drill out what is dead and death and decay and darkness within us and fill it with something good. Pride comes from the hollow space in our hearts where insecurity lives. The more insecure you are, the more pride you need to compensate, the more pride you need to, to fill up that hole and to, and to cover it up. When we are insecure, when we're not sure of ourselves, we will do everything we can to hide and cover, just as Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves up in Genesis chapter 3. The beauty of humility is that it will set us free from pride in such a way that we don't need to fill up anything else. We don't need to cover or compensate. Maybe our story doesn't seem that dramatic or exciting, and that's just okay. Maybe life isn't everything that we wanted it to be, and we can't keep up with the Joneses. And in humility, we don't need to. Humility is the virtue by which we can be humble and honest, to admit that we're wrong without feeling any shame, to be able to learn from others with joy, not making, it, not making ourselves feel dumb when we learn from someone else, but taking joy that God has given people gifts to learn from. Everyone knows something you don't, and you know something that other people don't know. But your self-worth doesn't depend on proving your knowledge to the world. And how special you are doesn't depend on showing the world your skills. Being humble doesn't prevent us from being good at something. But in humility, it simply leads us to give thanks to God that any gifts that we have are a gift from God. From baptism to all the other things. So, are you compassionate? Creative, hardworking, strong, perceptive and wise, good with words, good at math, musical, technical, good. You don't need to go out of your way to prove to the world that you are these things. But by example, let it speak for yourself. You don't need to draw anyone's attention to your image and your reflection. And our insecurities, as deep as they can be, a helpful reminder is to know that we don't have anything to gain with pride and we don't have anything to lose with humility. Because if you take a moment to think of a person you respect and admire who is truly humble, a truly humble person, do you think less of them because they don't boast or inflate themselves in front of others? 
No. Nor would anyone find anything lacking in you if you were free in Christ's humility to just be who you are. No pride to compensate, no boasting to have to cover up, and no temptation to put other people down to lift ourselves up. Pride will always go before the fall because it will make us stay where we should not stay, like the match that's going to pass the flame right along. And pride will often make us defend decisions that we know are bad. And just to pick on Ross, since he's in front of us right now, and he can handle it, parenting will test our pride and humility. Because there are moments where our buttons are just getting pushed a little bit too much, and then an innocent request comes forth, like, can I have a popsicle? No! There's no good reason that the kid can't have a popsicle. I'm not saying, Ross, you've ever done this, but for imagination, we'll just pretend you have. There's no good reason David can't have one. But then as soon as we say no, he wants one. We get some at our house. If I dug this hole, I'll dig our way out of it. But we defend bad decisions in pride because we said something, and then we don't feel like we can take it back without losing some ground. And then we might even reflect like, ugh, this isn't what I believe, this is actually wrong. But our pride will make us stay where we shouldn't stay because it's just too much to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. So a good test for pride and humility is to ask, when's the last time I've just said, I'm sorry? And not tried to dress it up as, I'm sorry, it's, I just can't stop doing the right thing. Or I'm sorry, I'm so honest. The true apologies don't highlight our virtues. That's false humility as well. When's the last time we've just said, I'm sorry? Or even worse, said, I was wrong. Those are hard words to say. I was wrong. But pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall because we will build ourselves on top of a stool that has one leg and insist that we stay there. And our pride will bring us toppling down. Better to be low in spirit, humble, with the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. Whoever gives heed to instruction prospers. And blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. Many people will consider themselves Christians and yet remain at odds with each other because their pride will not allow them to make the confessions necessary for reconciliation. I'm sorry. I was wrong. You were right. You're good at this. Can you teach me? Humility will let us ask those questions and make those statements in truth. And we will have the joy of learning from those around us. But pride will always make us show ourselves to people instead of Jesus. Pride will, in fact, keep others from seeing Jesus in us because they'll only see us. Pride will keep us from the truth about ourselves, the truths that we'd rather not reckon with. Pride will allow us to ignore our faults long enough until we can conveniently forget that they exist. We can say that's not us all day long. 
But when is the last time we admitted we were wrong or apologized or asked forgiveness or asked someone to teach us something? When's the last time we confessed our sin to God specifically and not just generically? Humility will set us free from insecurity. Nothing to prove, nothing to show, just glory to God that we can willingly and readily give. Friends, enjoy the freedom of humility. And to replace the image like Narcissus of staring into ourselves and wanting to convince other people that we are everything that we want to be, it's a lot more appealing to look up at Jesus and not worry quite so much about what we have to prove to the world, but to remember that our original commission that we started baptism with is to make disciples of all nations to show people Jesus and not us. And to know that through the water of baptism, through the bread and the cup of communion, Jesus in all humility has reminded us of who we are and whose we are. So we remember, friends, that Jesus Christ in all his humility emptied himself and came and lived on this earth a perfect and righteous life, one that we could not live on our own. We do this in remembrance that we come to the table to be fed by Christ, remembering that in humility he was upon the cross, that he died for us, that three days later he rose again for us, for our sins and for our salvation. We come in remembrance to this table and in communion, knowing that just as Christ is the true vine in whom we must abide if we are to bear fruit, just as a grapevine Grapes have to be attached to the vine to bear fruit. We come in remembrance of who Christ is and what he did. We come in communion with the living Jesus who is with us always and will never leave us or forsake us as we heard a reminder of today. That it's not just the people you see here but that Christ is truly present with us. We come in remembrance, we come in communion and we come in hope. Hope that is based upon the faithfulness of God's promises that we heard and celebrated here today in baptism. The hope that stirs us forward when we remember that the world is not all as it should be. And of all the pain and brokenness in our world, our hope is in Jesus, who is faithful and who will lead us home.